Hi, this is Steve Harley of Wings, and you're listening to Things We Said Today with Ken Michaels and Steve Marinucci. Well, hello, hello, and welcome once again to another broadcast of a Beatles program that we call Things We Said Today. This is a weekly show in which we talk about what's going on news-wise in the world of the Beatles. I'm Ken Michaels, one of the co-hosts of the show. Some of you know me from my other Beatles show syndicated around the country called Every Little Thing, being joined by my co-host, the man who writes for Beatles Examiner, and uh, Paul McCartney Examiner, and Monkeys Examiner, so many Examiner columns. It's a wonder he has time for this show. And that being Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Yeah, I wonder, too. <laughs> <laughs> on today's show, we have a special guest with us on the phone. And he is Lawrence Juber. And many of you know him for being the last lead guitarist in Wings. He was with the group from 1978 through 1981. And we're celebrating the release of his brand new book. He's calling it his photo memoir. And it's called Guitar with Wings. Lawrence Juber, welcome to Things We Said Today. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's just start the conversation by asking a pretty simple question. Um, after all these years, what made you decide to put out a book like this? I didn't. It wasn't my decision originally. It was actually a man named Marshall Terrell who did an interview with me, and in the course of the interview, uh, which went, you know, fairly wide-ranging interview, I mentioned that I had all these photographs, and he said, oh, you should publish them, and I said, well, why would I do that? He said, because there's a market for that kind of thing, and people would be really interested in, in seeing them, and um, he came back to me and said, I can get you a publishing deal, so, you know, at that point, I, I had no idea how much work was going to go into it, but I, I agreed to do it. And I'm glad I did, because I'm really happy with the way it turned out. But it was uh, quite a labor of love. It took me over a year of going through many, many shoeboxes full of slides and negatives and contact sheets and sorting out stuff and you know, finding, you know, finding the right story to tell. Mm. Um, and it was, it was really quite you know, interesting for me to revisit that period and to, to discover things that I, I didn't even know some of the pictures that I had. I, I discovered stuff as I was putting stuff in the scanner. Lawrence, what did you discover that you didn't know you had? Well, there's one particular picture um, that I really love, uh, where Linda is, is standing in a beam of sunlight, and her face is, is kind of split, kind of slightly diagonally between light and dark, and she's in this kind of very prayerful kind of pose. And it just was kind of a magical moment. And I, it wasn't on the contact sheet for that particular roll of film. Uh, but it was on the negative, and it just, you know, when I scanned that particular strip, it was just, wow, where did that one come from? And and just, you know, being able to go back and, and kind of revisit some of those moments was, was really um, kind of a powerful thing for me. There are a few other ones. I found a, a cool picture of Denny reading a newspaper that, uh, I, again, it was one I didn't know I had. There were a few that I did, and I'd always thought, oh, wouldn't this be nice to um, to do, you know, some print? Uh, some large format prints, but I never quite got around to it. And I still intend to do a few prints because there's some, some lovely stuff in there. Hmm. Yeah, there really is. There really are some gorgeous photographs in there. It was more luck than judgment. I mean, I never professed to any great skill as a photographer. But when I joined the band, I got myself a decent camera, and I kind of took my cue from Linda as far as um, doing very surreptitious kind of low light using fast film, no flash, kind of fly on the wall type stuff. Mm. So she gave you some pointers? I just kind of like watched in particular uh, she would use Kodak recording film at sixteen hundred, which you know was quite grainy, but um it was um but you didn't need any flash and you could do really low light stuff and get some really interesting effects. This kind of regular film was Tri-X, which was 400 for black and white. Couldn't do that with color. I mean, the color set pictures are, are more kind of natural light, uh, but, you know, well-lit outdoor stuff mostly. I love the, the early pictures of, of you as a guitarist and some of the, the album covers, uh, bef you know, before you joined Wings. Mm -hmm. What were some of the sessions you did before you joined Wings? 
I remember the session very well, but had no idea what it was for, was Alan Parsons' project. I played on um, a tune called Pavan from uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination. And what I remember was the session at Abbey Road on a Tuesday night with a string orchestra, a harpsichord, some mandolins, and acoustic guitar. And I had no idea what it was for. And then many years later, I read in a magazine uh, an interview with Alan Parsons, and he mentioned me having played on the album. And it was like, whoa, I did. (laughs) And I went and bought the CD and saw my name on the credits. Interestingly enough, when somebody had me sign a vinyl one recently, and I noticed that they hadn't given me credit on the original um, album credits. So uh, probably why it never came onto my radar. So that was one. I, I did a very cool album with Rosemary Clooney when she had made a a comeback after she kind of got her life back together in the mid-70s and had been out touring with um, with Bing Crosby. And I think that probably was about 1976. And one of my you know, most memorable ones was playing on the soundtrack of The Spy Who Loved Me. You know, mm. Especially for a kid that, that grew up wanting to play twangy guitar on James Bond movies, I got to play twangy guitar on a James Bond movie. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about some of the guitar heroes you had growing up and if they, in fact, did influence your playing in any way, I'm, I'm going to bring up a, a name here that you, you uh, mentioned in the book, and that being Howard Roberts. You say that you like the West Coast guitar licks of Howard Roberts. Um, Howard Roberts, yeah. Well, I, I had been kind of musically adopted by a local trumpet player named Phil Revens, who had a kind of a wedding band. And when I was 13, I would go out and... Play, you know, sit on the bandstand and fake my way through Days of Wine and Roses and you know, kind of all that stuff. And I, I kind of, as much as I was into and playing rock and roll, I was also intrigued by the the, the more sophisticated kind of uh, harmonic aspects of, of the kind of the show tunes and you know the standards repertoire. And so I was pursuing you know some interest in jazz guitar players, and, and, and Phil had given me an album by a pair of, of Los Angeles studio trumpet players named the Candoli Brothers, um, and, and the guitar player on that was Howard Roberts, and that was the first time I heard guitar licks that were like, you know, really like, you know, those kind of slinky, you know, kind of post-bebop type things, and, and then I realized that he was part of a school of, of L.A.-based studio musicians slash jazz guitar players like him and Barney Castle and uh, and a little bit later Joe Pass and mm-hmm. and and so I was really quite intrigued by what they were doing but I also started listening to Django Reinhardt the great gypsy jazz guitar player mm. um, and and aspects of that you know crept into I mean I played with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra when I was a teenager. Um, so I was playing some jazz guitar, and, and aspects of that crept into my work even with Wings, like the intro to my baby's request. You know, mm-hmm. or actually, technically, it's baby's request. Uh, but that song is um, kind of a is, is very much in that that kind of West Coast kind of uh, jazzy guitarlic kind of area, which was exactly what Paul wanted for that tune because we were doing a, a a slightly jazzy kind of faux standard type song. How much um, when when you were uh, um, doing sessions with Paul? How much input did you guys have as far as where the songs went? Um, did he basically guide everything, or did you guys get to really put in some creative thoughts uh, as far as where the songs would go? Um, it was it was a combination of of Paul directing it and opening up space for creative contributions. I mean, it was. He didn't tell me you know, how to play my solos, for example. When I did the solo on Spin It On, you know, I sat in the studio and, and played guitar licks for him. And, you know, that went very quickly because it was I was going for a particular kind of flavor. And, you know, that song had the kind of punk rockabilly vibe about it. And so I just kind of launched myself into that that kind of feeling and you know being able to be eye to eye with Paul McCartney gives you a kind of a, a creative synergy and, and you don't necessarily have to have to articulate what's going on so yeah, there were things like that other times I mean he had very specific riffs I mean like the riff the guitar riff on Old Siam so was kind of baked into the song 
so there it was for me it was a question of kind of matching what his intention was and and, and bringing my own voice into that there were times i mean i remember steve was the one who came up with the idea of doing double speed drums on uh arrow through me and because there are two drum kits on that on that track and steve holly was was being very creative and we were all given the opportunity to be creative to introduce whatever, you know, kind of textural or, or linear kind of musical ideas. I mean, Paul was very open to it. There were times when he would be quite insistent, like on getting closer, he really wanted to play a rhythm guitar part. So, you know, that, that was his prerogative to do. But it was, he wasn't dictatorial by any, by any means. One of the most interesting songs on the album, based on um, ideas that were mixed in, uh, is to you, and you've talked to me about that song and the guitar solo and the unique way that that how that was achieved. You want to bring that up? Well, with to you, you know, we had done this very raw kind of track. I mean, it's certainly not a um, an easy listening kind of song. I mean, it's really got you know, some edge to it. And when we were setting up to do the guitar solo, I had got a guitar sound with you know, Stratocaster, and I think I was playing through a Mesa Boogie amp and. Got, you know, this pretty raucous kind of rock sound. And then Paul and Chris Thomas, who's his co-producer on the record, were in the control room and, and decided that they were going to run my guitar through a harmonizer, which is a device that will change the pitch. So we had it set up so that I was what I was playing was being reinterpreted by Paul in real time using the harmonizer. And they were feeding that to me in the headphones. So I would play something, and um, um, the note that I would play, that I would hear in the headphones, wouldn't be the same note that I was playing. So there was this kind of wonderful synergy that was going on between the, the two of us. And I love the results of it, because I, I like stuff that is kind of slightly outside, you know, that, that doesn't just fit the normal kind of parameters. And, and the sound that we accomplished with it was something that, it came up a few years later um, on, on the Yes record, Owner of a Lonely Heart. There's a similar approach using the harmonizer to kind of stretch the, the pitch of the guitar. But it was uh, really just one of those nice creative moments where you get that flow going and you get some, you capture that creativity in a way that makes it feel like a unique kind of record experience. Wow, I hadn't realized that with the Yes record. The parallels there. Yeah, it's the same basic approach. Yeah, I think a little less, um, a little less random in the way that it was being done. Whether or not um, they they heard what we had done, or just you know, it was just going to the same kind of creative space. I don't know. Lawrence, you have a lot of technical. You you cite a lot of guitars in the book and talk about the guitars you've used. What's your favorite guitar of all the ones you've used? Well, I, you know, my my signature model Martin is, I mean, not only the fact that it was something that was you know, built to my specifications, but it also, you know, coming from this really iconic guitar company, and, and especially when I was growing up, you know, Martin guitars were really hard to come by in England, and the fact that I could actually not only have, you know, well, more than one Martin, I've got a few of them now, but, but with my name on it, is, is just a remarkable thing. And that really is kind of, you know, that's where my, my kind of creative heart is as far as that's my go-to instrument. It's what I play on stage. It's what I tour with. I have a few of them because some of the woods now have become, like Brazilian rosewood, you can't really travel outside of the U.S. with it without a mountain of paperwork. So I have some, you know, alternate, more customs-friendly uh, versions. But the, 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 that basic guitar is, is kind of the go-to instrument. With the electric guitars, I mean, the uh, the one that I have a, a particular affection for is a, a Les Paul, 1957 Les Paul Goldtop. There's a picture of me playing it in the book, and that's the one that I actually bought in New York on the way into Tokyo because I flew with the McCartney's from, to from New York to Tokyo when we were going there in January of 1980. And after Paul, you know, infamously was arrested for his agricultural uh Inappropriate ag agricultural imports uh, to Japan. Uh, they customs people came at me with a screwdriver and you know indicated that they wanted to take the guitar apart in the search of contraband. So I, I had to you know kind of demonstrate to them that there was actually nothing stashed inside it. 
but it survived that, and uh, that's that's just a, it's just a very cool guitar. You know, it's something about old guitars where they just have a certain kind of vibe to them. Mm-hmm. I'm also very fond of a, a Gibson three thirty five. That's the one that I'm playing in the Good Night Tonight video too. Mm. I still have a few of those guitars. There's that one, and the one in the Wonderful Christmas Time video is an old Stratocaster that. Um, I still use and actually used very extensively on recording sessions, especially in the 1980s. Lawrence, talk about Chris Thomas and what his input was for the Back to the Egg album. At that time, he was certainly one of the hottest producers. And because of the fact that I guess the punk movement was so hot with the Sex Pistols and all and, and, um, and Chris producing other artists like the Pretenders and all, was he just... Uh, Paul recognizing, he does go back to the Beatle years too, Paul recognizing the fact that he was so talented and he had the sound of that time. Was he, was he looking for, for someone at that moment who had the sound and tried to capture you know, the, the hard edge of the punk movement? I'm not sure what the rationale was. I mean, certainly you know, Chris had just come from doing, doing the Sex Pistols, he would then, you know, the next album he did after Back to the Egg was The, the Pretenders' debut. Mm. And, and there was still, you know, the, this great mystique about him. I mean, the fact that he was, he was very involved in the final version of Dark Side of the Moon, you know, which, which had been having some issues and he got brought in as a trouble, to troubleshoot it. And he certainly had a history with Paul as far as, you know, having been George Martin's assistant working on the White Album and onwards and, and, you know, there was very much, I mean, Phil McDonald, who, who was the, the main engineer on, on Back to the Egg, you know, was also an Abbey Road, you know, Beatle-era uh, person. And, and so I think Paul liked to work with people that he trusted from that era. And Chris had a more overt rock and roll sensibility than, you know, I mean, Paul was coming from, you know, the, the most, when I joined the band, I mean, the most recent single was With a Little Luck. And that prior to that was Mall of Kintyre. And I think that with Paul doing the first album for his new record deal with Columbia Records, uh, it made made sense to have a co-producer that could bring a more more obvious kind of rock sensibility to the, to the table. Because I think that, that Columbia were kind of expecting Paul to to venture more into that area. Which is really what happened, at least to begin with. We really, you know, started back to the egg with a, with much more of a kind of a back to basics rock sensibility by doing, you know, the first song we did was to you, second song was spin it on, third song was old Siamsa so, uh, to get the album started. You call um, Linda Paul soulmate and creative energy, um, Lawrence. Um, what is, what specifically did she bring to the band? Just this, this great, you know, she had. A very a real rock and roll soul that she she kind of kept things on the rock side she she kept it just it felt there was a nice balance that she brought to it you know because uh Paul and Denny you know had a good creative relationship, but the fact is that that Linda was just so much part of paul's sensibility and and wings existed i think within paul's framework wings existed so that he and Linda could work together. You know, but it was uh, that, that was, I think, a big part of the rationale. Um, and I also think it, eventually it was the reason that uh, for the demise of the band was that I think Linda was just getting to the point where she was just too preoccupied with raising the kids to want to be also working full time in the band and, and touring around the world and all the disruption that went along with that. But, but she just had this great kind of soul to her and, and you know it was great spending time talking to her and hearing stories about you know her work in New York before she met Paul and, and all of that I mean she she was just a very cool lady and, and very I think you know, very too easily dismissed that, that even though she didn't position herself as as a musician she brought a musical sensibility to the band, and, and when she had a role to play in terms of keyboard parts or vocal parts, she acquitted herself really well. And, and the, the sound of her voice is really, really quite integral to the vocal sound of the Wings records. And, and you think about you know that vocal sound on Silly Love Songs, for example, and how much that, or listen to what the man said, 
and how much her voice is really a part of that. Even going back to Ram, I mean, her voice is, is very prominent on the Ram album. And you know, the, the Wings vocals were very, very characteristic of, of the kind of vocal sound that you were hearing on radio and, and pop radio in the 1970s. I mean, next to the Carpenters and the Bee Gees and, and you know, those kind of, uh, even 10CC, another example. Those kind of stacked, really, like, you know, just very cool, but not not necessarily um, kind of pure pop, but with a rock sensibility, kind of, you know, a little bit of a, a roughness and a little bit of an edge to, to that sound. And, and, and the blend with, with Linda and Denny and Paul was just a really great sound. Yeah, that's something that I wanted to bring up to you, Lawrence, because we had discussed this in our interview. And certainly after Wings, there's less of a presence from Linda on Paul's music, I mean, there's, it's, she's still there. You can still feel her, but it's nowhere near as of the degree during the Wings days. And then you certainly notice, after her passing, how much she's missed on, on Paul's music, because she really filled out the sound with the harmonies, along with Denny as well, obviously. But, um, you know, she, she played such a major part and deserves to be yeah, given a lot of credit. she a huge contribution. And... You know, Paul was very specific about the fact that there would never be a Wings reunion because without Linda, you couldn't do it. Because I, I think that he really felt that, you know, that it really believed that she was integral to the band, and, and I can I can see that. Uh, you know, remember, in the Beatles, you had Paul with George and John as his kind of vocal foil. You know, so you know when, and they were a fantastic harmony band. I mean, they were, you know, their, all their harmony work was was just really beautifully executed. And Wings, you know, that continued the tradition in terms of having these multiple voices being able to to blend. And and it is different when you get into Paul's solo work because um, you don't have that, you don't have those other characters in there. You know, it's, the focus is different. And, and I, I think that's a that's a good point to bring up that that it really it did change and, you know but it just really kind of in, in hindsight proves how much Linda really did make the contribution that people were not really appreciating at the time. You and uh, Steve Hawley just got together at uh, Abbey Road at the, uh, on the river. Um, how did that how did that go? Oh, it was fun. We didn't get to play together enough, to be honest. Um, the schedule didn't really work out quite right. And I was, my principal ensemble thing there was to play with Ambrosia, um, which, which was also fun. Um, and Steve and I will get together on occasion, as I also get together with Denny Sywell and, and, and Denny Lane. I mean, rare is the opportunity for all of us to play together, but, you know, us wingmen have, uh, you know, we were part of a fairly exclusive club, and it's nice to get together and, you know, make music. And, and I've always loved Steve's drumming because he's so unlike Paul's usual choice of drummer. I mean, Steve really is a you know a, just a very solid English you know, backbeat rock drummer. And um, you know, and I love Denny Sywell too. But Denny's a very American-sounding player, very orchestral kind of player. I mean, Den- Denny Sywell's drum parts on on Ram are just fantastic, just unique and wonderful additions to the, the structure of the songs. They're not, it's not just sitting there playing time by any means. It's interesting, you just brought up Ram. I often look at Ram and Back to the Egg as two particular albums from Paul's post-Beatles career that have grown in stature over the years. And certainly when Ram came out, Paul was not in favor with the critics, and they really roasted that album, and now there's this new appreciation for the Ram album, and likewise, I feel the same thing for Back to the Egg. I think a lot of people are recognizing that album more and more as being a very strong effort. And certainly amongst the McCartney fans that want him to rock out a lot, they look at Back to the Egg as one of his last efforts, true efforts of putting out an edgy album. You want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there was an intent to, to put some edge in there. You know, and I think it was a reflection of the kind of the punk thing that was going on and, and, you know, the transition that was happening into the whole new wave kind of thing at the same time that it was just the, you know, the times they were changing at that point. And, and Paul's always been very 
responsive to it. Interestingly enough, how quickly he moved on you know, into the McCartney 2 kind of proto-techno um, type stuff, and that particular album is revered amongst the, the DJ class, you know, who, who recognize where Paul was actually quite ahead of his time in what he was doing. What's interesting to me is that not only did Back to the Egg have a rock and roll sensibility to it, but Wings as a live band had, was developing more and more of its, its rock chops, you know, to the point where, and, you know, I think what defines it is, and we're going beyond Back to the Egg in terms of, of repertoire, but, you know, that live version of coming up, and the, the, the battle it had with the studio version of coming up, you know, with Paul's more techno version of it, and you have the live version from uh, from the, the Glasgow concert being the number one record and being favored by the American market, certainly because everybody liked to hear Paul singing rock and roll. And interesting that we had two hits in a row in Good Night Tonight and Coming Up, both of which were dance, essentially dance records. But, you know, even with Good, with Good Night Tonight, which, unfortunately, because Columbia marketed it as a disco single when they did the 12-inch, people actually thought it was a disco record, which it wasn't. It was a dance record, but it didn't subscribe to the normal formulas of, of disco music at all. It was just a very cool, very danceable record and, and with a very strong Latin flavor to it. In fact, in Europe, Throughout the summer of 1979, that was the number one record in Italy, in Spain, and I think in France too. Um, and even the live version of that, if you ever you know, get to listen to it off of the um, the Last Flight album, which hopefully will come out eventually as a legitimate release, but that that last Glasgow concert, the, the live version of, of Good Night Tonight really you know, feels that much more like a rock record, especially because instead of playing the flamenco-ish solo on an acoustic, I'm doing it more kind of a Carlos Santana style on the electric guitar, cause, simply because I didn't have time to switch from an electric to an acoustic and back again and be able to make the vocoder part, the uh, um, I want to go home kind of robotic voice, which I also had to cover uh, at the same time. So, But there was there's just a rock sensibility that was kind of pervading everything that we were doing, but it was in the direction that Paul was ultimately going in as a solo artist. And I think that was a, you know, a kind of symptomatic of, of the, the, that, that final period of Wings, that you had a band that was encouraged to be a rock band, and then a band leader who ultimately wasn't going in that direction. So when we started working on the, the stuff, the tug of war, Pipes of Peace, but it was not that kind of a band. It was, you know, that stuff should have just been worked on in the studio instead of kind of rehearsing it from a band perspective. You mentioned um, earlier you were talking about Howard Roberts. You also worked with Chet Atkins. you want to talk talk a little bit about him? Was he, was he a big influence on you too? No, how, uh, Chet Atkins really wasn't a big influence on me. Mel Travis was a bit more of an influence, and part of my kind of teenage aspirations to play fingerstyle guitar. Chet, I was very much aware of, and I never actually, like, worked, worked with Chet. We were on the bill together um, uh, at a concert in Nashville. Lovely man. Uh, and I met him a, a, a time before in London, too. Um, there's a nice story in the book about when I met him for the first time. But he wasn't such a strong influence. My influences were very broad and very eclectic, and... and Growing up in London, where I was exposed not only to the jazz scene there, but also the folk scene, and, and all the English folk musicians like you know John Remborn and Bert Jansch and, and Martin Carthy and, and Al Stewart. And you know, ironically, you know, sometime later, I ended up producing four Al Stewart records and touring with him. But you know, I would see Al performing folk clubs. I opened for Al when I was 14 years old at a folk club in, in North London. Wow. Um, and so there was those kind of influences, but then there was also, you know, the rock side of things and the classical side of things too. It was, it was all very eclectic, and uh, because my ambition was to be a studio musician, and, and ultimately that was what got me into Wings was the fact that I was a versatile player, and uh, to replace Jimmy McCulloch, they were looking for somebody who was versatile. They needed somebody who could cover more stylistic range than the than than Henry or, or Jimmy. 
had, had brought to the band. Because I think that Paul was, was seeing that as much as the direction was going in a rock and roll direction, there was still other aspects of things, uh, of his musical expression that were in play. And, and you can see that on Back to the Egg, where you've got the, you know, the more ballady kind of stuff, like you know, Love and Wake, which is just a beautiful and, and I think underappreciated song. And the, the, you know, this um, Baby's Request, which goes into this kind of standards kind of thing, and, you know, various other, like, R&B, slightly jazzy influences. I mean, Arrow Through Me, when you strip it down, is actually, you know, harmonically, is almost like playing Duke Ellington. It's really uh, quite a remarkable composition. Yeah, you've talked about Arrow Through Me with me and how much you appreciate it. What is it in particular? Why does that song seem to stand out so much for you? I, I think it's not so much that the song itself stands out, as that just when you when you analyze Paul's work as a composer and you forget strip away Beatles and just take Paul McCartney as a composer as an artist that he has tremendous skill as a songwriter and a tremendous stylistic range as a writer that he can do pretty much anything that he sets his mind to and do it with grace and with finesse and I mean, yeah, one, one can argue, you know, in terms of uh, his lyric writing ability, where, you know, that, that tends to have a wider range to it, you know, and there's certainly some of his records have had extremely fine lyric writing, and other ones, you know, it's like he kind of, I feel like sometimes he just wrote them on the back of an envelope and that was it. But his skill as a composer, as a, just in terms of how he puts music together, there's such finesse in it and it's, it's so rarely is it generic you know even the stuff that you kind of you, you might not even think about like you know wonderful christmas time for example it's a beautifully written composition but how he puts his music together and, and arrow through me i think is very representative of that musicality and and there's a certain satisfaction for me as a musician that just comes out of being able to appreciate the depth and, and the range of his, his musicianship. Okay. Is there a chance that you will, that you, or did you have a lot of pictures left over from the book that you didn't use, and is there a chance that something will happen with them in the future? No, not enough to do another book. Lots and lots of pictures from the, the next 30 years, but, um, but of that era, I picked the best stuff. Okay. The most reproducible. I mean, there are a few, you know, and I may on the, the Guitar with Wings website, I may put up, you know, a few other images that, that didn't make the cut, but are kind of interesting and fun images. But but I, I managed to get all my favorites in there. The sad thing is that some of my orchestra pictures, when they were originally developed, never made it back from the lab. So somewhere out there, there were, you know, somewhere in England, somebody ended up absconding with a, a pack of really quite cool orchestra pictures. But they're enough to, you know, to be able to make a nice chapter out of it. Have you heard anything about when the uh, Back to the Egg remaster comes out? If if maybe they'll be using material from the Rock Estra Sessions, because we know that was filmed. Well, there is no other material from the Rock Estra Session, other than the film. Right. Other than, all, you know, all the film footage, which has all kinds of issues in terms of permissions and rights on the individual musicians, but there were no outtakes from Rockestra. I mean, there might be alternate takes, but but what you got was the best of what was there. And whereas there are, you know, unreleased or, you know, at least outtake tracks from Back to the Egg, you know, like Cage mm-hmm. and My Tune Maisie, and um, I mean, those two in particular spring to mind, and, and some alternate versions of some of the songs from when we may have demoed things over the course of time. But, but there was nothing from the orchestra session because it was basically, you know, it was an afternoon and we did two songs and we managed to get exactly what we needed in the time that was allotted to it. But it would be great to, you know, see more of that film footage because I think the only thing that was out there was, what, about a 20-minute edit or something? Hmm. Are there any anecdotes you can give us about um, the Rock Estra Sessions, about working with any of those great musicians? Well, it was fabulous for me to, to get to work with Hank Marvin in particular. 
because he was just my, my first guitar hero. In fact, most English guitar players' first guitar hero, They're playing with the shadows. I mean, and that was just a blast. And he, he thoroughly enjoyed the session. And then I think he had to leave, leave early to go off to a Bible study session or something. You know, it's the, 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 the curiosities of, of the rock and roll world. I do remember the fact that Jimmy Page's amplifier was there, but then he never showed up, and so his, his guy took it away. Because he had been invited and was apparently expected, but then he, he didn't show up. And then Eric Clapton, uh, for one reason or another, couldn't make it. And Jeff Beck had been invited too, but I guess the story is that he had wanted approval over his guitar parts, and you know, Paul, Paul, that wasn't the spirit of what we were trying to accomplish. It was just kind of you know, all for one and one for all. Um, and there's a, a Steve Holly has a great story about uh, John Bonham and his drums, but it's, I, I can't repeat it unfortunately because uh-huh. <laughs> it would be an X-rated um, comment. <laughs> But, but, you know, the whole session was just, it was really a fantastic experience. And for me, just looking down the guitar section and, and seeing Pete Townsend and Dave Gilmore and, and Danny Lane and Hank Marvin, and being in that company was was just just a delightful thing for me. Steve? Well, I was, gonna, I, I was just going to bring up um, the passing of Ann B. Davis. I know you knew her, and uh, you know, because of the Brady Bunch um you have anything to to say about her, Lawrence? Well, let me uh, maybe for your listeners, I should explain that my wife Hope is the daughter of Sherwood Schwartz, who created Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch. And I had uh, met Ambie on a number of occasions. She was just a lovely lady. And um, last time we saw her, I believe, was um, when we we did the workshop of our, uh, of a very Brady musical, the Brady Bunch musical that we. Um, that Hope and I wrote with her brother Lloyd, and Abby came out for the premiere of that. And then we, Hope had written and produced um, Still Brady After All These Years. It was an anniversary special a few years before that, and Abby was there for that too. And just really just lovely. And, and, and you know, I mean, she had a, a great career, and she, she became kind of, you know, a, a, a TV icon. And it's, you know, it's very sad to have lost her, but you know, she was 88. I mean, it's a great run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have to say, I have to admit my age, and I remember her as Schultze um, <laughs> from before Brady Bunch. Um, yeah, but I think for me, it was like American TV. There was very little American TV that I was exposed to in England, so mm-hmm. I'd never even seen the Brady Bunch until uh, after I met Hope. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Same thing with Gilligan. I mean, actually, I saw my first a baseball game and my first episode of Gilligan's Island the same day. That brings up an interesting question because anybody, I think a lot of people that are listening know that Hope was on the Brady Bunch. And, uh, she played Greg's girlfriend. Right, yeah. yeah. And she was uh, also the one that was uninvited to the slumber party. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's that's a and little Brady trivia that I don't know. But I do, I do know she was, she was on because I remember that episode very much that uh, she was on uh, with Greg, and uh, that was uh, that was funny. That was hilarious. Well, yeah, with the frogs on her head, yeah. Where, where um, the, a frog lands on her head, and, and in fact, we have some pictures from that episode. So we, um, when people recognize her, they usually recognize her from that episode. And so we call it a frog girl sighting. And we'll actually be at the Brady Bunch convention in August in New Jersey, which is the same weekend as the Fest for Beatle fans in Chicago. So I'll be I'll be at the Beatle Fest and Hope will be at the Brady Fest. So Oh my. <laughs> yeah. Did she do any other acting besides Brady Bunch? She did, right? Um, no, not not for television. She she did some stage acting as a teenager but um but she didn't want to pursue it as a career. She really wanted to be a writer. Okay. Um, even though she's a very good actress. She's also a very good writer. In fact, we're producing a play uh, right now that's going to open July 10th that she wrote um, along with um, a friend of ours, a uh, man named Jeff Doucette, who is a fantastic character actor. If you see commercials with um, 
Benjamin Franklin, that's most likely Jeff, because he, he gets hired to play Benjamin Franklin in commercials. But he's in, been in all kinds of movies and stuff. And, but he's also a, an improv, uh, an acting improv coach. And Hope and Jeff wrote this play called Without Annette, which is, uh, as in the woman's name, Annette. But it's also a play on words as far as, like, performing without any visible means of support because you know, that's what improv is, is, is getting up on stage and, you know, somebody will throw out a, a topic and a group of people will improvise a scene. And so we have a, a play that is set in an improv workshop and it's scripted, but there are places where it goes into improvisation. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the show, this group of people, as in these characters that have been established, then do their own improv show. And it's really, uh, we've got an amazing group of people doing it, some really fantastic actors, people from The Groundlings and Second City and The Spolin Players. If you know anything about that improv world, that's, mm. you know, those are the, the really great Los Angeles um, and Chicago uh, improv groups. Right. Um, so that's kind of an exciting thing. And I'm working in some possibilities so I can actually be playing some live incidental music and stuff like that. I really enjoy getting involved in theater stuff like that. We're also going to be doing a couple of Beatle Fests between now and the end of the year, correct? Yes, I'm doing the Chicago one in August and the Los Angeles one in October, and I'll be in New Jersey in March also. And then that'll be kind of the end of this particular kind of run of them. I haven't done a Beatle Fest uh, in a couple of years, and you know, I don't do it all the time. It's just periodically I'll I'll go back into that circuit. You know, I've been putting so much of my focus in the last, certainly the last four or five years, on on being out and touring extensively, doing my solo acoustic thing. Uh, but I'm taking a bit of a break from it now. I've, I've kind of reached the end of that cycle, and uh, you know, last year I spent a lot of time doing the book. I want to spend a bit more time composing. I, I'm starting to fall a bit behind on my own artistic expression. I've done a lot of a lot of arranging over the years, you know, with my two albums of Beatles songs and Wings and Harold Arlen and various other, you know, doing other cover tunes. And I still have a bunch of uh, arrangements that I've yet to put out, especially um, the big showstopper that I seem to have developed is a, a solo version of Won't Get Fooled Again. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be going over really well. So I've got to get that recorded and you know, lots of stuff to do. Uh, Lawrence, if we could just go back a little bit to Paul again. Um, the Back to the Egg album, why is it that you guys didn't tour right after it came out? Good question. Well, album came out in, what, May, end of May, mm-hmm. 1978. And then, you know, it's the it's kids' school holidays and they all go up to Scotland. <laughs> hmm. Steve Holly and I you know, got dispatched to New York to do a promotional blitz for it, uh, but I just don't think that they were really kind of that motivated to just jump out on the road, and you know, we didn't actually tour. The UK tour didn't happen until November right. of that year. So, you know, there's, there's no easy way to quantify some of those kinds of decisions. I think that perhaps simply the fact that Paul, by virtue of his his superstar status, could kind of dictate how he wanted to do things. And, you know, to the extent that, for example, Goodnight Tonight, which was a big hit, wasn't on Back to the Egg, didn't really fit stylistically, but it sure would have sold a lot more records. You know, and that's that's a much more American kind of marketing strategy Whereas in England, you know, the Beatles singles were never on the, the album. They were always standalone releases. And, and in the same way, I think that there wasn't always the motivation to tour in order to support an album because Paul's fan base was going to sell enough albums anyway that, that it was the imperative, you know, when you're a young up-and-coming band, you have to tour to get the word out. You know, at that point in Paul's career, I don't think the motivation was quite as strong. And it wasn't like he didn't have the faith in the band because we, you know, we we were we went out on the road and we were going to Japan, you know, except for his unfortunate agricultural issues there. But but we were, you know, we were kind of primed to to really get out there and 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 be working. But it just it took a while. 
And I think part of it was having spent you know, essentially a year getting back to the egg done, the, you know, the, it made sense to actually have a bit of time off before we then got into the rehearsal process. Because by September of, of 79, we were in rehearsal for the tour, you know, which really got kicked off with, with the Buddy Holly concert that year. But as to why, I mean, it's possible that there was still some of that kind of late Beatles uh, attitude of you, you know, that you make a record, but you, you no longer have to tour. You, you just put the record out and, and the fans are going to buy it. Because certainly, the, I mean, had the Beatles continued to tour through the latter part of their career, would they have sold more albums? Probably so. But, you know, the, but the circumstances of touring weren't that great. And, and even for Paul, I mean, I imagine, uh, and maybe Linda had something to do with it too, because the Wings Over America, Wings Over the World tour period was, was an exhausting experience too. And then, you know, Linda turns around and has James. So, big world tour, then pregnancy and, and a baby. And maybe it was just, oh, I don't want to be doing this again yet. You know, I, I can't speak for exactly why, but I think there's some reasonable speculation there. At what point did you think that the end was near for Wings? One thing that I found kind of interesting is that Paul started recording McCartney 2 in the summer of 79, when yeah. Wings was a functioning band. And I'm wondering, at that point, did that send a red flag to you and, and, and Steve and Denny? Not necessarily, because we were still, there was still an integrity of it as a band. And, and you know, I think that part of Paul's motivation was that he... He wanted to he wanted to move his deal with Columbia along, and because there was this perception that Back to the Egg wasn't a hit album, that he wanted to kind of feed that particular you know piece of business. And there was a whole bunch of new equipment out, and he kind of thought, oh, I'll, I'll spend the summer having fun with with equipment, you know, which is you know, where where that a lot of that motivation came from. But the band still was was still together and still you know we had the tour and I, I would say that you know one could one could look at the Japanese busters being a, a certainly a, a, a red flag but even then we still you know the wings still existed for over a year afterwards it was still you know we still had that option of being able to perform with the band and record with the band so you know but I was really just taking it kind of you know one day at a time I mean it was a gift from the get-go so I wasn't going to be looking that particular gift horse too closely in the mouth. Yeah. Hmm. And how did you feel when you did the tug of war and pipes of peace material? Did it feel like different material? Did it feel like it wasn't really a band type album at the time? I mean, they were good songs, but but the way that we were approaching them in terms of just working them in a in a rehearsal room didn't really lend itself to the process of those kinds of songs. From my, you know, and certainly within my post Wings experience as a narrator and record producer, and you know, I, I, not to mention the, having been a studio musician for so long, it just felt to me that we weren't really able to accomplish what was appropriate to those songs in in a rehearsal environment like that. And I imagine, I mean, were I to have stuck around. It's quite possible that I might have got called in to play on some of that stuff, but I had already decided that I was going to make the move to New York, you know, pretty much by the end of 1980. I mean, I moved, I moved in January, end of January 81. And we had, Wings had spent, you know, some weeks in the studio in January, uh, working on, you know, what was called the cold cuts stuff. And, you know, as it, I mean, for me, that tug of war stuff is good songs, but it would have been almost more like just being a session musician, which is really how it was conceived you know, when George Martin said he just wanted to use studio players. And you know, they they did a certain amount of stunt casting with it when they you know they had like Stanley Clark come in to um, to work on some stuff. I think in in once I don't recall exactly the sequence of it, but then Paul doesn't exactly recall the sequence of things. You know, I think that he gets his timeline slightly askew at times in that period. Okay. I need to bring up one thing in particular because uh, I didn't bring this up in, in our last interview. And that is, and you devote a few pages in your book to this, that you work with George Harrison 
which a lot of people don't know about. What was that like? And that was for the, the Shanghai oh, Surprise uh, soundtrack. Quite delightful. It was lovely, lovely bloke. And, you know, but it was a, a curious time because it was right around the time my daughter Elsie was born. I mean, mm. literally the day. She was born in the morning, and then, like, you know, by lunchtime I had left Hope at the hospital to, you know, in recovery and, and ran off to, to work with George and then went back to the hospital to take Hope home later. <laughs> And then a few days later, we we actually went to Village Recorders with Elsie, you know, who at the time was um, just a couple of days old. But working with George was was lovely. I mean, it was, uh, and he was very happy to talk about the Beatles. He had a you know kind of a, almost a fan perspective on it, and um, no great revelations. I mean, it was just oh, there were a few revelations. I mean, I didn't know that you know, as a teenager he had had some jazz guitar lessons, for example, and, you know, you can see in his playing with the Beatles just that he had a more evolved guitaristic sensibility than strictly, you know, just he was was way more than a strummer. And, you know, you mentioned Chet Atkins earlier, and certainly George had, you know, a strong influence, Chet Atkins' influence in his playing. But it was, um, it was fun. And Jim Keltner was playing drums, and it was, you know, it was, and in those days, I mean, the mid-80s, I was doing a lot of session work. So it was, you know, it was kind of, in some respects, it was all in a day's work. And, you know, but it was with George, and that was kind of really cool. But what was interesting is when we were in the, when we took Elsie, when, when Hope, uh, George has invited Hope to, to come and say hello and bring the baby with. And we went to the studio. At one point, George took her out of the, the carrier and, and was dancing around the studio. And at one point said something in... Um, Sanskrit and touched her on the forehead, and we said, "What did you do?" He said, "I gave her the gift of music," um, and it took because she is actually really good. She's a really good songwriter, and she now has she has a song on JLo's album that's coming out in a couple of weeks, a song called "Never Satisfied," and she's been writing with all kinds of people, and we're expecting that she's going to have you know, a whole bunch of. Uh, of her songwriting is going to get released in the next um, kind of few months, and she's well on her way to having some success in that. Okay, um, congratulate uh, her for her it. DNA had something to do with it, but you know <laughs> the fact that she was blessed by George Harrison doesn't hurt. Well, congratulate her for us. Thank you. Mm. But what what were the songs that you worked on with George? It was um, someplace else. Uh-huh. From uh from the Shanghai Surprise soundtrack. Right. Which I think he re recorded for um Cloud Nine. For the Cloud Nine album, I, I believe. Um uh, the we did the movie version on it. Oh, so you're playing on that oh. version. Interesting. I'm playing acoustic guitar on that, yeah. Okay. Huh. George played the electric he actually borrowed one of my guitars to uh the picture there's a picture in the book of him behind the console with a, a one of my guitars and he was playing through my gear. Because he didn't have any electric gear with him. And those are great songs too. I, I yeah. those are really uh, good stuff. It's too bad that uh, Shanghai Surprise stuff didn't come out as a soundtrack album. Well, it was one of those movies that the critics like. You know, wasn't a, wasn't a critical success and wasn't a commercial success. Well, the other was... one of that era that is really too bad that the the the, the songs didn't come out is the the stuff that Paul Williams wrote for Ishtar. Remember the movie Ishtar? Mm-hmm. You because know, that was slammed by the critics. It was actually a very funny movie. And in the movie, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty make a record that the CIA finance. And these, it was all like these really, really bad, but really like well-crafted songs that Paul Williams had written for them because you know, they, they, they play a bad songwriting team mm-hmm. um, who end up you know somewhere in, in the desert like as you know, part of a CIA operation, um, and it was a very, very expensive movie, and the critics hated it, and it didn't do that well at the box office. But there was this album that has now developed something of a cult following, and that was um, that we actually made the record, and Jim Kalman played drums on that. Actually, the bass player on that is Abe Laboriel Senior, who's Abe Junior's dad. Oh my! Um, and Waddy Wachtel played guitar along with me. But, you know, you work on stuff, sometimes it doesn't see the light of day. And then other times I've worked on things and had no idea that I even played on them, whether it was 
apparently that I'm on um, I'm on play, playing electric guitar on, on Nobody Does It Better, and I didn't know it, but you know they had played some tape to me and said, "Oh, just give us some guitar in this section," and apparently that was you know the Carly Simon record, but I didn't hear any vocal when I, when they did it. Um, mm. I did play on a version of that song as an instrumental that Marvin Hamlish did, where he's playing piano, I'm playing electric guitar with a string orchestra, and I only discovered a few years ago it was nominated for an Academy Award. You you know you just don't know. It's the weirdest thing when you're a studio musician. Well, that's that's another great talent we lost with Marvin Hamlish. Um, yeah. I want to just uh, mention one more thing, and that's that you played with Ringo on Stop and Smell yeah, the Roses. Because that was Paul called me up and said, hey, you want to come to France and, and record with Ringo? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And um, so we spent about 10 days at Superbest Studios in the south of France, near Nice. And um, it was Paul, Ringo, and Howie Casey, mm-hmm. you know, who, who was you know, Wings' sax player in, in the horn section. And a, an amazing steel guitar player from Nashville, and then Lloyd Green. Sure. Because uh, we did one of the songs that we were uh, recording was Short to Fall, the Carl Perkins song, and, and Ringo wanted um, some uh, pedal steel on that. So we had um, kind of... And Paul had written some new songs, Attention and Private Property, uh, for Ringo to do, and I I was there playing... I played 12-string guitar, electric acoustic, and we also did... Um, a very strange late-night jam called You Can't Fight Lightning, mm-hmm. where Ringo was actually playing, strumming on a guitar, one of my guitars that he cut his finger and bled all over. And I have, inside the guitar, I have spots of, of Richard Starkey's DNA. <laughs> and his blood inside the guitar. Well, we I... need to clone him. We know what to do. <laughs> well, whenever I play that recording, because it came out as a bonus track, on the CD, I'll make sure I play this clip of you talking about it. (laughs) And that Ringo's DNA is there in the guitar. There we go. (laughs) All right, anything else, Steve? Um, The only thing I was going to say was uh, just make a comment about Shanghai Surprise. There was so much drama surrounding that movie. That's another reason that, you know, with uh, Madonna and and, uh, Sean Penn. Yeah. But, oh well. Anyway, the music is great. And the fact is, what it left George with was he needed to write pretty much wall-to-wall music to to keep the energy of the movie up. So he was like just burning the candle at both ends while we were working on that stuff because he just had so much work to do. Mm. There was a producer named Bob Rose who produced that particular session that I worked on. And Bob had also done, shortly before that, we did some tracks for Donovan, for an album that only came out in Japan that was basically the same group of musicians. I think Prescott Niles played bass on on um, the George Session from, from the Knack. Oh. Yeah, I think it was him and Kel that were the rhythm section. Before we close, I think a lot of people aren't aware of... I mean, we talked about your session work in the studio, but we haven't really talked about your TV work. You know, and and uh, you know your guitar work. Like I know that you you've um, a lot of your work is in home improvement. So, yeah. are there other TV shows that you want to bring up for us, where people oh, can hear? Um, Roseanne, Seventh Heaven, Eleven Years of Seventh Heaven. Wow! And the acoustic guitar is really prominent in that score. Uh, oh, I mean, I played on the last episode of Happy Days. I played on <laughs> shows like Family Ties, Family Matters. Um, Charles in Charge, Boy Meets World, Dinosaurs. I mean, it's there's a long, long list of stuff. Plus, as a composer, I also, you know, I, I did the music for the Brady Bunch Christmas movie, A Very Brady Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my kind of my first opportunity to actually do an orchestral score. And I just, you know, I've, I had this kind of wide range of stuff that I've done. I scored a, a Tarzan series in the 90s that was a French-Canadian co-production that still gets shown worldwide. I, what else? Um, video game stuff. I mean, I did the, a lot of music for a game called Diablo 3. Oh, my God. You're my, you're my son's hero. <laughs> yeah. No, he loves, it. He yeah, loves that game. When they launched Diablo 3, 
there's this very like there's a couple of chords on a 12 string guitar that everybody recognizes and and they flew me to paris and i stood on stage in front of 12,000 people and played played these two two chords and everybody erupted because they knew that the game was going to be announced you know? <laughs> um and but also theme park stuff you ever go to japan and you eat at the magellan's restaurant at disney sea i i did the music that plays um all, all around the clock there it's uh i wrote a suite for guitar and string quartet and even at animal planet at, at, at disney world if you, you you'll hear like some guitar version of feed the birds or something most likely it's me i've done stuff like that over the years you know when my kids were little i didn't want to travel so i stayed in la and i did studio work and i was on the young and the restless for six years on camera <laughs> Playing guitar with uh, with the actors, and, you know, because they would do a lot of music shows there, all kinds of stuff. I mean, mm. you know, I was band leader on a local TV show in LA for a year with uh, a man named Fritz Coleman, who's a local weatherman, who's also a stand-up comedian, and we had a show that ran at 1 a.m. every um, every uh, Sunday morning, and right after Saturday Night Live, and I had the house band with Bruce Gary from the Knack on drums and Phil Chen, who's one of the great. Uh, bass players uh, played with um, Rod Stewart. He played bass on Do You Think I'm Sexy? He played bass on on Jeff Beck's Blow by Blow album. He's just, you know, had this great band. And, and every week we would have like people like Booker T or John Mayle or Edgar Winter would come on and be musical guests. It was really it was a blast doing stuff like that. So I've just had this really you know, diverse and, and interesting career. But over the last 20 years, I really started to up my game as a solo performer and just get out there and do my, my solo concerts. Um, and, and now but, you're an you know, I miss studio work, too, so it, it's always nice to get a bit of a break and you know start getting calls to come in and play on a... Right now I'm playing on a Peter Bogdanovich movie that will come out next year called Squirrels for the Nuts. It's like a Jennifer Aniston thing. And just played on a huge movie in China called The Monkey King that had the biggest opening in Chinese movie history. Um, wow. You know, and and it's just it's, it's always something interesting. I think your next book should be called Lawrence is Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere and nowhere, baby. <laughs> really? I mean, it's just so impressive, all those credits right there. When you write for television, when you do scoring music for television, are you shown the scenes where they yeah. need music placed and then you have to think what would fit or... Yeah, you, you, you see the picture, and usually there's a director that you, you sit and you work what's called spot the music, where you discuss where it's going to start, where it's going to end, and what it's going to accomplish. And, and you know, but sometimes, I mean, with, with some of the things I've done, with some of the things I've done, it ends up being you know, just kind of, you know where it's going to go, so you don't need to kind of go into any detail. I'll just, you know, I'll just do the writing. Mm. But I haven't done that in a few years now. I, I actually like doing movies because you're more... Uh, there's a little bit more kind of creativity in that process. But, you know, I play on other people's movie scores, too. I mean, I played on the last, not the last Muppet movie, but the one before, playing banjo for for Kermit. Because <laughs> he doesn't really play the banjo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I assume this, it, it works the same way. It works there where you don't see what you're, what you're, you don't see the scenes that you're working on on the movie scores, correct, or... No. No, uh, well, it all depends. I've been on movie sessions where you do see what's going on, and sometimes they'll actually ask me to play to what's on screen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember when I did The Spy Who Loved Me, that I'm sitting in the studio, and it was just me. They needed that, you know, the James Bond theme to open up the movie, and they showed me the scene, and I just, you know, I'm there with Marvin Hamlish, you know, playing that, that lick. Yeah, I mean, typically... When it comes to a TV show, I mean, when I'm there as a session player, I mean, often I'm simply reading the music, and the composer or the conductor is watching the picture, and making sure that you know we're hitting all the the right beats. But then you'll see a playback, and it will be okay. Well, now you now you've got the notes. We want this feeling in the scene, or whatever. I mean, it's all very um, interactive. I remember working with Danny Elfman on Goodwill Hunting on the. Uh, the opening credits of that, where he had a particular idea for a guitar lick, and uh, I said, well, let me do it in this tuning, and then it all kind of flow the way that you seem to want it to flow. And then Gus Van Zamp was in the, co- the director was in the corner kind of plucking away on a guitar, and he comes over and kind of uh, gives it a listen. And, and, you know, it's a process. There's a, 
um, a certain collaborative thing that comes out of it. Well, Lawrence, unfortunately, our, our time is up here. We, we we have to cut this short. But um, it well, has that's, been... Uh, that's okay. I actually have to go to a reception for an album that I played um, for a group of Carmelite nuns. <laughs> they've done the cutest thing. They took the Meet the Beatles cover design, and they it, it's them. It's all four, four of them with their with their nuns' habits and their wimples and all that stuff, but, with, but looking like you know the Beatles on the cover of, uh, of that album. And it's just very cute. It's the most unusual rendition of that particular album concept cover that I've seen. But uh, I have a local studio that calls me in to do some sessions, and uh, they had a, a track on, on their album that they needed some real guitar playing as opposed to kind of a flying nun type guitar <laughs> playing and uh, the Carmelite Sisters. So, you know, it's just my... my uh, the people that I work with just can be so diverse, so. But I'm an equal opportunity studio guy when it comes to stuff like that. You'll have to tell us when that comes out. Oh, yeah, I think it's out. Actually, it's just coming out. It's on iTunes already, I think. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just on the first track on the album, but it's kind of it's sweet stuff. Anyway, uh, okay. it's been lovely to talk to you. Same here. And, uh, Same here. You know, Thank you very much for, for coming on, uh, Lawrence. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. We must say also that the website to find out about Lawrence's book is guitarwithwings.com and you can also go to Lawrence's own website where you can find out anything and everything, even more than what we covered in this conversation. Um, his whole history, all concert dates that he has lined up, it's all there on his website, lawrencejuber.com. Lawrence, thanks again. It has been such a pleasure. And uh, anytime yeah, like you want to come back, just let us know. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Wow, that was so much fun. A lot we learned there about Lawrence, his time with Wings, and his career. I'm Ken Michaels for Things We Said Today, thanking all of you for listening, and I'll see you next time. And this is Steve Marinucci saying thank you very much, Lawrence Juber, for, for being on the show, and yes, we will definitely see you next time. Mm-hmm.